Hi there, I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope. I like the movies and stuff. Welcome back to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. Your favorite place to revisit those indelible moments from Hollywood past. And each week we feature a different artist who helped make them happen. And we've had directors, we've had screenwriters, but we haven't had an actor yet till now. Who is also a director. And a writer. And it, wow. So we've got all three in one. We have it's like multipliers. Yes, we have a perfect triple threat. He tap dances, sings. Actually, he does sing. He does sing. <laughs> he sings and plays it. He's the only singer in uh, the movie that we talk about. The only cast member who actually sang in the movie. That's true. And you're going to find out who he is, assuming you haven't read the episode description on It, it Happened, Happened in Hollywood. Hollywood. I don't know how much we agree on, but I think we can agree on the fact that the Coen brothers are amongst our favorite filmmakers of all time. Indeed, indeed. What a body of work. I mean, so little is actually known about how these movies come together. And if you ever read interviews with them, they are frustratingly opaque. Right. They're very enigmatic. I don't know if you've ever seen them speak either, like at a Q&A or something. It's way more Q's than A's. Bad news, we don't have the Cone Brothers, but we have almost as good. Luckily, this week we have a conduit into the minds of the Cone Brothers, actor and director Tim Blake Nelson, who's appeared in several of their movies. You've probably first took notice of him in a movie from 2000 called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's in their newest one, which you can see if you're a Netflix subscriber, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He plays the main character, Buster Scruggs. Yes, and also interestingly, he sings in both these movies. In Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He is the only cast member who actually does his own singing in the film. Is that correct? Please send cards and letters if that's not true. We're going to talk about both of those, mostly Oh Brother, and try to learn something about how the Cones make their cinematic brand of magic. Let's start with his background, which is so fascinating to me. He is a very highly educated Jewish guy, but he happened to grow up in Oklahoma, which was kind of unusual. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes, that's a dusty wasteland without many Jewish people. You're not going to find a lot of matzah in the uh, AMP in Tulsa. (laughs) No. (laughs) My mother was a philosophy major at Bryn Mawr in the 50s, and my father went to Yale. They ended up in Oklahoma because my mother was a Holocaust refugee, and that organization, HIAS, which was in the news recently, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, had settled the sponsors of my mother's and her family's immigration in Tulsa. And so they had to go to Tulsa because that's where their sponsors were. So we were in Oklahoma, but the expectation was that we would go coastally, which is somewhere on either West Coast or East Coast for college. So this actually went over my head while he was saying it. But the reason that the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society was in the news recently is because the synagogue shooter in Pittsburgh wrote this rant online against 
H-I-A-S. Oh, my gosh. Right before he went out and, and killed 11 people in, in that synagogue. Um, yeah. And he wrote, H-I-A-S likes to bring in invaders that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. So and and this is a organization that since 1881 has been bringing Jews and other refugees lately it's been from countries like Syria and Afghanistan and resettling them and so that's why he ended up in the dust bowl because his grandparents uh, fled Nazi Germany and settled there with his mother and um just uh, so it gave him this this unusual upbringing where he he got steeped in all things Americana and from that part of the world, but also sort of being an outsider. Right. It's very desolate there, if you've never been through Oklahoma. Well, Windswept and dusty. You know, I, you know, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, but you grew up in... in uh... Which sounds like a dream, you know? <laughs> There's a cross at the top of a hill. <laughs> it's beautiful there. It's less dust, more snow. Yes, but, but it is beautiful. It's like, you know, French Brooklyn or something, and I grew up basically in like an armpit Probably about six hours from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So like six hours south in Texas. So I get what he's talking about. Yeah. And he told us about how he was sort of homeschooled, that his parents would have him write paragraphs every night on different topics and would grade them for him. Although he went to regular high school, too, didn't he say? Yeah. He also mentioned how there was very little by way of independent or art cinema in Oklahoma at the time, which would become his passion. So he got into Brown. Not bad. Pretty nice. And immersed himself in the classics and semiotics, the, the study of signs in literature. And he did really well at Brown. And then after Brown, he, you know, he had studied all the classics of cinema. He took film classes and decided he wanted to be an actor. And he got into Juilliard, which is, means he beat out 1,200 people. So he had some innate talent. But then in the real world sort of hit him and you know he was struggling in New York trying to make it as an actor and a director and you know not having a lot of luck and kind of down at himself because he had the classic character actor face and he had a kind of harsher assessment. I did about three or four plays a year and then I would do hallway parts in movies which is a term for that that the lead character needs to get from point A to point B and it's usually walking down a hallway, and some bit of information needs to get imparted right. during the walk to advance the story forward. And I would be the character, you know, maybe walking alongside, deliver the information, and then get lost and <laughs> leave the movie. So I did a lot of those parts, usually one or two a year, and more commercials than I could name. And just begged, was just desperate to get on a TV series, anything. Usually wouldn't. They usually wouldn't even, I never even went to network. And one day I saw an audition I'd laid down because the casting director let me look at it. And I looked at my face and I just thought, well, I'm never going to be on television. That's just a, there's just so much hideousness there. Nobody oh, wants no. that in their living room. That's um, a terrible thing to say yeah. about yourself. Well, I, you know, you, I, it's, that's the way it was. What do you oh, make man. of that, Chip? You're the you're an actor. You've gone out on auditions. Like, well, I'm brutally handsome, so I don't know <laughs> what he's talking about there. No, I mean that's 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 what happened. There's just all those types, and so you're either a character actor or like a big star, you know. 
who's handsome. But it seems Usually like character actors or people with memorable faces, they work more. Or I don't know. Maybe I'm, I, I don't know enough about it. But it seems like, you know, I would not look at him and say he's too ugly to work. I'd say, oh, he would get certain kinds of parts. Like, right. It's rare that I guess the lead and the character actor look intertwines. You know, maybe you got Edward James almost or something. I'm trying to think of like who's been a lead, but Gene also Hackman has a character isn't exactly, face. You know, that's true. Nobody wants to bang Gene Hackman. <laughs> Sorry if you're involved in the Gene Hackman camp or something. Anyway, I felt kind of bad for him when he said that, but uh, he seemed to take a more realistic uh, approach to. Even though I think it was it was too harsh an assessment of himself. Right. Regardless of how he looks, you know, he was in the right place at the right time because. The cones are also circulating in that scene. Right. And his wife, Lisa, becomes good friends with Francis McDormand. Who's yes, Oscar winner Francis McDormand. Multiple Oscar winner. Actor extraordinaire. And uh, Joel's wife. So through the wives, they sort of become friends. But still, you know, nothing more than friends. He makes his first indie film in 1997, Eye of God, I think. And uh, he finally gets the financing together for a second film in 1999-ish called O. Then he caught word of an exciting project that his friends, the Cones, were working on. I heard on the radio when I was driving to the production office one day during pre-production that Joel and Ethan were making a movie with George Clooney based on the Odyssey. And I had heard a little bit about that from Joel, but I learned on the radio that it was a go movie. And uh, I thought, man, that's that's amazing. And it said it was set in the South. And I thought, God, that's fantastic. That's going to be great. And I was in production a few weeks later. We were shooting. And and uh, my assistant came and, and said, well, during the last take, Joel Cohen called. And I called him. And he said, do you have an address down there? And I said, yeah. And he sent me the script of Oh Brother and said, I need your advice. And I read it, and I thought, oh, he wants to know if it's, if it's a good adaptation of the Odyssey. But I've got to break the news to him that I, yeah, I was a classics major, but I mainly did Latin. So if this were the Aeneid, maybe, but I've read Homer, but, but certainly not in the original, and I'm not, I never put any close textual analysis to it. I just read it on my own. Mm-hmm. So I called him, and he said, but I'll remember it. This is exactly what he said. He said, all right, look, you're probably going to tell me to go fuck myself, but we want you to play Delmar. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. It was just a straight up offer out of the blue of a lead in one of their films. I mean, what, this is so far removed from Hollywood in a way. When you think about is like, well, I haven't read it in the original language. And I mean, think of how seldom this conversation is happening in show business. Yeah. Tim Blake Nelson is as far from the caricature of the empty headed actor as you could probably conjure. And I think most of the things he said flew right over our heads. I think that the story of Tim Blake Nelson is one of a high culture kind of low culture story, which is... What do you mean? Well, I (laughs) thank you for asking. I mean that most of 
show business, popular entertainment is lowbrow, low culture, but everybody aspires to the high culture. And so you get like a Coen Brothers, they'll do a high culture and then they'll do a low culture. And then sometimes they do like a mixture of the two. I think there's something to your theory that the reason they're so popular is because they indulge both of those things. You can feel sort of intellectual watching their films, but the enjoyments moment to moment are very kind of base. Yeah, and then you have Tim Blake Nelson, who is off doing a hip-hop version of Othello, and then someone calls you to do a Dust Bowl version of The Odyssey. You know, it just seems like you're matched up to it. Okay, so if you've never seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, it's basically about three guys played by John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, and George Clooney. Why don't you try to summarize the plot? Trying to explain this movie, it's really kind of hard because... It's incorporating mythology from the American South, and the title of the film is a reference to Sullivan's Travels, and it's got the folk music in there. Three convicts escape from a chain gang and set out to find a supposed treasure, and then the treasure turns out to be Holly Hunter, basically. And then along the way, they record music. They're baptized by a group of Christians in a river. They get drugged by some sirens. What? I mean, come on. They stumble on the Ku Klux Klan rally. I mean, it's kind of nuts when you try to synopsize this thing, isn't it? It is. But you did a good job with the help of Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) You had to go to it because it's crazy. So anyway, George was the first cast and you know this is a big leap for for tim he had been in the, the movie the thin red line where it, she thought was going to be a huge movie just probably like everybody in it but zippo nothing he was disappointed in that and so he, he didn't want to put all his eggs into this basket but he knew this had to be something special so i'd already had the experience somewhat of feeling like everything's going to be different now and having it not be different at all And in fact, for a lot of us, that experience being hurtful in a very healthy way, because it was a a real lesson for all of us, that it doesn't happen overnight, and you can get real body blows when you think you're being put on a feather bed for life. So that helped me put it in perspective a bit, and it also helped me understand, well, you better damn sure do this right. And also don't waste it. And Totoro was a big help because when he got down there, even though George was incredibly nice to me and really generous and always present as an acting partner and never once condescended, never once, just the nicest guy. He was still George. And John was more of my ilk. He was a guy who'd gone to an acting conservatory like I did. He went to Yale, not Juilliard, but it's the same difference, and had done theater for years in New York. And he really took me under his wing in a really beautiful way and protected me and protected my peace of mind and my mindset. Never let me take it too seriously. Never let me be intimidated. And most importantly, he said, enjoy this. Don't waste it. This sort of opportunity, these movies made by these guys, they come along once every 10 years. Enjoy being here right now. And if you do that, your performance is going to be even better because your sense of play and joy and appreciation and 
a manifest intuition about the generosity that's being given to you will then be reflected in the way you play the character and on the screen, and that's going to make it better for the audience, and it's going to make the movie better. And he said, as good as their scripts are, their movies are always better. It's an interesting statement to say that as good as their scripts are, their movies are always better, because if you've ever read a Coen Brothers script, it seems like the script was written after the movie was made, and it is a shot-by-shot depiction of what you see on the screen. It's really kind of remarkable, because a lot of film scripts just give you a vague kind of blueprint of something. But you look at a Coen Brothers script, it's exactly what's on the page. Beyond that pep talk that he got from John Turturro, Tim was getting a good feeling about this movie for other reasons. At one point, Joel came to him on the set and explained that this wasn't just going to be a straight-ahead comedy-dramedy. It was going to be a musical. With authentic music from the times. I had a sense that there was some groundbreaking stuff going on with the movie. So first of all, when Joel first talked to me about the movie, he said, look, there's going to be this music component, and I'm going to send you a tape, but we're going to re-record all these songs, and we're going to do state-of-the-art recordings of them, but in the absolute vernacular of the time, and we're going to really produce these well. I grew up listening to this music, and I know this music And a lot of the bands they were going to use, I listened to growing up, the Cox family. I listened to them on the radio in Oklahoma. And the Whites, I listened Mm to them. And Gillian Welch, I had her first record, Revival. And I, I just had a sense, the people who aren't aware of this music, because it's going to be ferried out into the public on a Coen Brothers vessel, that's going to be seismic. So it is very interesting because the Coen brothers incorporated the music into the script when they were working on it. So it's not just like an afterthought. They get T-Bone Burnett while they're writing the script to come in with songs. And so if you want someone who is a true student of this kind of folk music, this kind of bluegrass Americana, you get T-Bone Burnett because he grew up steeped in that. What's your favorite song on the soundtrack? I'd have to say A Man of Constant Sorrow is probably the popular favorite, but not only because it's, I guess it just gets in your head as a motif because it's in there probably about five, six times. The scene I hadn't seen the movie, you know, in a really long time, and the scene that totally stuck in my head was the the sirens when they sort of stumble on these three bathing beauties and they get totally, you know, entranced by them and then kind of get mugged by them. Oh right, that's a good song too. What was it? Go to sleep, little baby. Go to sleep, my little baby. My name is Ulysses Everett McGill, and well, you three ladies are about the the prettiest. And the devil makes three. Yes. Need no other love. Mm-hmm. Uh, water lilies. Uh, Go to sleep, you little 
And then there's that scene where everyone's in white and they're walking to the swamp to do a baptism and cleanse their sins. Yes. I remember John looking out in the on the pond and trying to convince us that there were water moccasins because George and I were going to go in and he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I remember the absolute beauty of being there. Because, yes, one of the treats of being in films, although less and less so with green screen and, and digital effects, is that, that when you have scenes that are, that are in camera and not digitally manipulated or created, you're there. And so they had speakers playing the music, and they had several dozen, I think about four or five dozen extras dressed in white that were from that choir singing to their own recording that they'd already made. And it was just overwhelming, this stand of, of trees with this sepulchral, beautiful, ethereal sound of, of their voices singing that gorgeous song. Oh, sinners, let's go down. And they were walking just as they do, and we were in the scene. It was as if we were there. So if you can imagine how exciting it is to see it on screen, it was real. It was absolutely real. And so the look of wonder on my face, which is pretty extreme uh, <laughs> when I see it, was real. So I think we should address what he just said, which is that sense of wonder on his face is is legit like that all that was happening they they set it all up the music was playing that dreamlike situation was was actually unfolding around them and that's one of the ways he got that right they've just set it up as if it's actually happening to draw those performance out of their actors but another thing about the actors in in a cone brothers picture is that they all seem to be very much on the same wavelength they're all kind of acting in this sort of heightened way a little bit more comical than in real life a little bit more expressive right. in the face in real life and i always wondered like how they get everyone to be on the same page and sort of working in this cones vernacular are you all sort of having little meetings saying you know fine-tuning the tone or how does it work what are the, what are the cones saying to you that gets this this coneness yeah, to your performance? you know it's it's all very friendly and genial and and clear so ethan will say uh yeah I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe pull it back a little. I don't know. Just do it again. Or Joel will come up and say, "Yeah, I think we need more here. I think he's got to be a little more excited about the baptism." Yeah. Let's <laughs> let's go again. And then they they chortle behind the camera. It's all very much like you're kind of hanging out, and no talking between the actors in that regard at all in terms of collaborating on how to make a scene work. It's, no, it, that doesn't happen so much. Well, that doesn't really <laughs> help doesn't much. illuminate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to direct like a Cone brother, just say more. 
or less? Mm, less. I guess that disappointed us a little. We wanted more secrets to their genius. Right. But uh, they play everything real close to the vest. But another place you can find secrets to what they're talking about in the text is in all the little references they make to various other movies in their movies. And you have to be quite learned to spot them all. Probably film schools can spend entire semesters on one of their films deconstructing the references. And we asked him about some of the some of the insider Easter egg, I believe is the, the way they... The kids talk about it these days. Uh, references in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The film is a, as you know, a mashup of The Odyssey and Sullivan's Travels. And they love Preston Sturgis. Ethan, in particular, is a Preston Sturgis fanatic. Chip, just explain who Preston Sturgis is for anyone who doesn't know. Preston Sturgis was a pretty much it's semi-popular filmmaker at Paramount Pictures, did a lot of movies for Paramount in the 40s. He was a very successful writer, and then he wrote a script that Paramount wanted, and they didn't want him to direct it, and he said, well, you can buy this script for a dollar if you let me direct it. And so they said, oh, okay. And that's how he got into directing. But he was one of those ones that was never really appreciated during his time. He did the... Sullivan's Travels, Palm Beach Story was one of his more popular movies. But he's kind of one of these guys that's well regarded by film students and certain filmmakers, that kind of thing. But the general public doesn't really know, I think, who Preston Surges is. Now, I'm no film nerd, but I did catch one very obvious reference in this movie. Turns out I was right. We asked Tim about it. Like one scene where even I was able to spot the reference was the the Klan rally and how much the whole scheme seemed like Wizard of Oz. Yes, and that was absolutely Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the the monkeys. Did um, that did that come up in uh, while you were shooting? Yeah, it? that did. Um, we all knew that when we when we come up from the bushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. uh, and, and I like just thought, I thought, jeez, I thought, Joel, we're really going to do this blackface. It was kind of like dirt face, really. Yeah. It's so benign. Their humor, even the violence, is so... I I, I know this sounds strange, but it's always so good-natured. It's not that they get away with it. You want them to get away with it. It's They're loved for it. Okay, so we've unintentionally stepped into a little... Picadillo. A little picadillo that seems to follow the Coen brothers around, especially recently as as the conversation about film criticism has turned towards having more diversity of reviewers. And they've started to get some heat in recent years over, one, the lack of diversity in their films, and two, some of the depictions of minorities in their films. Which happens a lot with some of the auteurs, right? Yeah. Like Woody Allen... You know, this was the same thing that Woody Allen was getting dogged out for several years back. Luckily, they don't have some of the same troubles that Woody Allen is currently facing. Well, yeah, of course not. No one's implying that. But there is a a whiteness. Yeah, right. Let's say a, a white New York bubble. Can we say that? Maybe. And then with their new film, it's not immune either. So their new film, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, it's a six-part anthology, no stories connected to the next, but Native Americans appear in two of them, 
And in both, they're depicted as savages who don't really have any lines. Right. And uh, it's interesting to read, you know, the way reviewers sort of digest that and either acknowledge it and rationalize it by saying, well, it's a satire. And this is how white people, quote unquote, see Native Americans, as opposed to saying, well, why didn't the Native Americans get one story of the six? Right. Perhaps they think it's out of the realm of their experience, and so they don't want to make a segment about it. But in this day and age, that's almost no excuse because... Well, they're certainly not feel-good filmmakers. They've never, you know, relished feel-good movies or depictions of people that you just want to love. Right, except it's, for Marge Gunderson. Pretty much, yeah. But everyone else, they, 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 lo- they like to explore the dark side of human nature, I think, in a co- comical way. Right, um, exactly. So, so it's not their movie to make, really, like the heartwarming story of the Native Americans' experience in you know in in pioneer america um right. but that said you know maybe they could have thrown them a couple lines in this movie exactly exactly um and i read and an interesting can we even talk about it you know what i'm saying <laughs> who knows nowadays are we are we getting into deep waters by even us just talking about it because we're not native americans i would we don't have that experience I read an interesting roundtable online on uh, Toronto Now, where they specifically talked about the indigenous characters in Buster Scruggs, and it was all indigenous directors talking about it. And they also had this guy, Adam Naiman, who wrote a book about the Coen brothers called This Book Really Ties the Films Together, which is... Ah, reference to Lebowski. Reference to the rug in Lebowski. And uh, he he had an interesting take on it. And I'm just going to read what he said. The Cones have had black characters in their films over the years, but never in lead roles. They've had really broadly racialized comedy like the Mike Yanagita character in Fargo or the Korean father and son in A Serious Man. As a critic, I can create rationalizations for all these things because in the context of each film they work, but they do add up to something that it's a bit of a perplexing and troubling question. When you have filmmakers this brilliant, influential, and taking up this much oxygen in the discussion, and I know because I just wrote a 90,000-word book on them, how much of this stuff is given a pass because it could be intellectually rationalized? And who are the people rationalizing it? It's mostly white critics. So there you have it. Something to at least think about. The Coen brothers are at a place in their careers where they don't really want to contend with criticism or social justice issues, and they have the luxury of not responding to these things, and they're just going to go about making the movies they want to make. And, you know, similarly, Wes Anderson is facing the same issues. Isle of Dogs was criticized for being a white normative uh, view of of Japanese culture. And, um, you know, they're not alone, but it's sort of a reckoning moment. And it's interesting to see how these various auteurs deal with it. Enough of this heavy stuff. Come on, we're really here for George Clooney anecdotes, aren't we? Right. (laughs) So let's get to the Clooney stories. So if you'll notice in the movie... You know, John Turturro and Tim both have the hickest of the hick accents you could possibly imagine. But uh, Clooney just sounds like Clooney. So Turturro and I are there obsessed with our characterizations. And, you know, I had that haircut and was doing this dialect. And 
Totoro had the teeth and his hair, and he was always really looking at looking at every detail uh, in the mirror, and 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 we had the makeup artists all around us. George didn't do a dialect because he thought, well, I'm from Kentucky, so I'm just going to talk the way I talk, yeah. and it was perfect. It was great. He he was right, and he has this guy Waldo, who travels with him as his hair and makeup guy, and so. Waldo would kind of look at his hair and, I don't know, snip here and there, and but they would just sort of shoot the shit. And then he would, every day, he had a stubble in the movie. And so he just kept the stubble at the same place for continuity. And then he has little areas in his beard that, like all of us, that are a little bald for whatever reason or the hair is more sparse. And he would take a ballpoint pen and he would go up into the mirror and put dots on his face for the stubble <laughs> to fill in with a fucking ballpoint pen. And I would watch Gene Black, the makeup artist, just look over <laughs> look over at him and just benignly kind of shake her head, <laughs> incredulous that that's what he was doing. And then he would leave and go throw the baseball with Waldo. It was so funny. Wait a second. He had Waldo. Don't you have a makeup dude that you travel with? Igor. Igor, he's hard at work touching me up as we speak. Oh, he's drawing those big cabaret-type eyebrows on you. <laughs> Give me the Liza. The, the li- well, I meant Joel Gray, but you could go Eliza. I guess either of them had those kind of eyebrows in that, All right, in that I, movie. I want another Clooney anecdote. Okay. I love I could listen to this stuff about George Clooney all day. There's that other anecdote he told about bringing his six-month-old son to, to work. Oh, boy. My wife likes to recall that she brought Henry to set. Uh, He was six months old, as I said, the day she met Clooney, and he proceeded to vomit all over George's costume. (laughs) And, uh, you know, George, who's now married to the lovely Amal, one day I got into the makeup trailer. Gene Black, the makeup artist, said, so, Tim, how how was your night last night? I said, I had the perfect evening. It was the perfect evening. I got home after work. And my wife had made this pumpkin ravioli with a pesto sauce. And we sat down and had the most amazing dinner. And it was just great. And then I hear George from the other end of the trailer. And he said, remind me never to get married. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't his definition of perfect. (laughs) Not his perfect evening. He was just upset about Now I think he maybe understands what I was talking about. (laughs) So, year 2000, the movie is released. Hugely successful soundtrack. Takes a while for the movie itself to build on word of mouth. You know, there's no internet or anything. I mean, there is internet, but not the way social media is today. So, it just kind of builds on word of mouth. It's the first movie that is edited entirely digitally. DI, Digital Intermediate. So that's interesting. They used to take the film and dump it onto a computer and then put it back on film, which now seems ridiculous. But that's what they did in the year 2000. But it all comes out in the wash. Everybody loves it. Tim Blake Nelson's life has changed. He never has to audition again, he said. Never auditions again. But what's crazy in two thousand what like the early two thousand two thousand and two wow they're thinking about Buster Scruggs they hand him the script for Buster Scruggs and even when you're the Coen Brothers takes sixteen years but it's exactly what they presented to him 
What was your favorite of the six anthology stories in it? I enjoyed the first segment, and not just because we interviewed Tim Blake Nelson, but I really thought that was the most enjoyable segment. And then I enjoyed the last segment, which tried to explain, spoiler alert, why almost everybody in every segment dies. Okay, so backwards a bit. In the first segment, he plays a sort of singing troubadour, sweet-natured, fun-loving guy. He'll first guy to jump on top of the bar and sing a little ditty, but he'll also be the first person to shoot you and yes. kill you. So it sort of like places this weird, again, that cone dichotomy of happy-go-lucky and super dark. Right. Unexpected violence. My favorite one was uh, the one who ended, I didn't even know when I was watching, it was Tom Waits, the singer. Oh, right. Plays a uh, grizzled, sweet-natured prospector, probably like the nicest guy in the movie, who doesn't even have the heart to um, kill an animal, I forget, was it um, a dog or something? He, he, he takes pity on, oh, a cow? Anyway, he's looking for gold, and uh, when he finally finds it, well, spoiler alert, he gets shot in the back. Right. Uh, but, extra but- super spoiler alert, he doesn't <laughs> get killed. <laughs> because triple duper spoiler alert, he drags his ass out of there with the gold. Look out, quadruple spoiler <laughs> alert, your next Netflix movie starts in five, four, three, two. But look, can we talk about the <laughs> the final chapter? That's a weird one. Like, it's, it takes place almost entirely in a stagecoach. So, Hateful Eight, Deja Vu kind of going uh-huh. on. They're sort of having an interesting uh, conversation. They're almost like characters in Clue. There's like the Frenchman and um, the fur guy. And, yeah. um, and they're having a weird sort of uh, philosophical existential conversation about the true nature of of man and then they they show yeah. up at this hotel and so, so what's your interpretation of what happens the death hotel it's interesting too because the whole color scheme changes during that segment as well it starts out very bright and colorful and then by the end of the ride it's very dark and it's probably digital imagery perhaps <laughs> this is the first coen brothers movie that's filmed digitally which i find interesting that it took so long that they did the digital editing on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, but didn't shoot a film digitally until this. Okay, but if we could get away from the nerd talk for a second no. and talk about the, the content. Yes. What do you think is going on there? What are they trying to say about the human condition? What is going, like, what, what's the moral of that story? That all of life is just trying to stave off death, but it cannot be staved off. It is our ultimate end. And so it doesn't matter if you're a prospector, a singing cowboy, uh, <laughs> a guy who keeps a mute or something. Wait, who is the guy doing the puppet show? <laughs> He's not. Oh, he is mute and he has no arms or legs. Yeah. So if you're a square mute. Then he gets tossed, tossed off a bridge. Yeah. Forget it. Spoiler alert, the square (laughs) mute gets tossed off a bridge, as happens with so many of these kind of movies. But anyway, it's another example of the enigma that is the Coen brothers, because you watch this two-hour movie, and what exactly are they trying to say? Well, I was actually at at dinner the other night with Ethan, and we were talking about writing, and the power that not knowing how something is going to end gives you in terms of what can be possible. And I think you really see that in Buster Scruggs because that speech at the end that the Reaper gives about storytelling as this distraction from our mortality just deepens what has occurred before with these five tales and now a sixth one that are all about mortality. And you suddenly understand, my God, I'm, I'm, 
These may have been these westerns, each one its own milieu, and it may be a kind of ode to a genre with all these subgenres depicted so lucidly. But this is also really about living a life, the belief we all have that we're not going to die. It's that sort of Kurzweil notion of, of well, the singularity is going to save me. That's the version of it now, I think. But that we're not going to die. But that's its own story we tell ourselves. And then we're whacked in the head. I'm the thumper. That's what <laughs> Brendan Gleeson says. And we're gone. That is some heady stuff. Happy holidays. Just to uh, to fill you in, if you don't know who Kurzweil is, he's he's a uh, sort of robotics AI theorist guy. And Singularity is this, I'm going to try to explain it in my rudimentary terms, but basically that humanity and computers and are merging into one, and that's where we're heading. So that I guess we're never really going to die. We're just going to be in the Matrix or something. I'm not entirely sure. For more information, watch Westworld, <laughs> season one, two, and whatever's coming soon. Three? But um, try not to think about that death stuff. I mean, yes, podcasts are here to sort of delay the inevitable, but uh, we're probably going to be here for 2019, So, and we have some great episodes lined up, so you're going to want to be alive for those. All right, so before we go, we know... You know, this is a highly divisive topic, but we we posed it to Tim. What are your top five Coen Brothers movies? I think it says an enormity about a person if they tell you what their favorite Coen Brothers movies are. So this is what he said. I would say th this is in no particular order. Lebowski, Man Who Wasn't There, Miller's Crossing, Serious Man, Lewin Davis. The serious ones. Oh, shit. The serious... You no, see, that's the thing, because they have like 19... The only one that I would say, all right, I'm going to replace Lewin Davis with Martin Fink. All right, go, Chip, yours. I go for the comedies mostly. So I, my top five would be uh, Raising Arizona, Lebowski, Hail Caesar. Most people probably haven't even seen Hail Caesar, but it's great. And then uh, Barton Fink and A Serious Man is probably the one that's the most kind of... I don't know. A serious Man is hilarious, though. Okay, mine, Blood Simple, Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, and Inside Lewin Davis. Of the Coen Brothers, what's your top five? Send it in. Let us know. We want to know these top fives. Yeah, send it to IHIH at THR.com. Through interviewing Tim Blake Nelson, we tried to get kind of at what makes the Coen Brothers tick, and I think it's a testament to their enigmatic quality that even if you talk to someone who is their personal friend has been and has been in several of the movies it's hard to get a hold on their style they're their own style and they're oft imitated i remember reading rex reed's uh in review of three billboards outside ebbing missouri, missouri whatever city that it took place in and he was just saying how it was like wannabe cone brothers and just a witless and everything which is kind of ironic because he hated oh brother where art thou and tim blake nelson didn't mention him by name but we could put a little bonus here and then there was one reviewer whom i won't name who in his evisceration of the movie he just hated it and he's ripping all of us he rips me he rips to Turo. he might as well name, name the critic and then in the Clooney paragraph 
he says, and and George Clooney's honking voice singing Man of Constant Sorrow is unlistenable, something like that. Meanwhile, a Grammy later, and it was Dan Tominsky, right. one of the great bluegrass singers yeah. singing gorgeously in that tradition. So what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, you called it. It was Rex I Reed. I just guess it was Rex Reed. I love being right. He hates everything. Wow. <laughs> that used to be one of my favorite things is just to do imaginary Rex Reed reviews. And my favorite one was... Uh, I'm not saying that streets could talk, but if Bill Street could talk, it would say, I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. So, Chip, what have we learned in this episode? I mean, this was just jam-packed with stuff. In a lot of ways, this episode hops around like, oh, brother, where art thou? You know, because we heard about a teen version of Othello. We heard about Kurtz Weil's singularity. Homer's We talked Odyssey. about a singing... Yeah, Homer's Odyssey, singing cowboy, Preston Sturges. I mean, what is happening, right? I think we're we're getting smarter. You know, we may not have uh, really cracked the enigma that is the Coen Brothers, but I think this podcast illustrates why it's hard to crack it. Some things are just unknowable, but they're always enjoyable. That's the Coen Brothers. And that's this episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Swipe up, subscribe. And until next time, we'll see you in in Hollywood. Hollywood.